Catherine Amir Farr. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law, Law Behind, Behind the Headlines. Headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Hi, this is Cal Raustiala. Welcome to another edition of International Law Behind the Headlines, brought to you by the American Society of International Law. And for this episode, I am speaking with my colleague, Shemen Keitner. Shemen is the Frome Professor of International Law at uh, Hastings Law School. And the tw- was she was the 27th Counselor on International Law at the U.S. Department of State. And what we're going to do today is talk about some very interesting issues surrounding uh, foreign sovereign immunity. Some of you may uh, have noticed stories in the last month or so. Uh, One CNN headline that caught my eye read, Supreme Court to meet behind closed doors to discuss mystery Mueller-related grand jury subpoena. And that subpoena is at the heart of what we're going to talk about today. So, Shemen, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. And um, Always fun to talk to you, Cal. Great, great. We're, we're I'm glad to have you. And maybe you could just kick it off by telling us a little bit about this mystery Mueller-related grand jury subpoena and what it has to do with sovereign immunity. Absolutely. And I must say, although I wish that, uh, you know, an interesting and complex international law issue in and of itself would merit a CNN headline, uh, as you can imagine, the reason that this uh, issue has been getting attention is that it is connected to the uh, just recently completed uh, Mueller investigation. I'm sure no one needs a reminder, but uh, just so we're all on the same page, this is the special counsel uh, investigation of alleged Russian interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. And although uh, the report of findings from that investigation has not yet been made public, uh, the indictments that the investigation has already uh, produced, I think, uh, tells a very compelling and granular story uh, about Russian election interference. Another component of the special counsel's mandate, of course, uh, was to identify any collaboration between folks in the United States and foreign agents. Uh, And to that end, uh, we might imagine, because all of this, of course, is happening in uh, grand jury proceedings that are close to public view, uh, that the investigation will not be limited to uh, evidence attainable on U.S. territory or held by U.S. persons. Um, so by nature uh, of the questions posed to the special counsel, this was from the outset uh, a transnational criminal investigation. It turns out uh, that the investigation um, led to uh, uh, suspicion, I guess, uh, that uh, relevant evidence was held by a an entity of some sort uh, that is majority owned by a foreign state. So that's where uh, international law starts coming in, because in the United States, we have a Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act that was enacted in 1976 that is generally understood to govern uh, jurisdiction over actions uh, involving sovereign states, their agencies and instrumentalities, and in the U.S. system, unlike some other countries, uh, also foreign state-owned entities such as this one. Now, it's important to note that we still have no idea, you know, what the identity is of this entity or what country owns it, uh, although certainly uh, media speculation has been rampant. And uh, to make a long story short, although I'm sure we'll get into some other chapters in the story in our conversation, the reason the uh, 
dispute made its way up to the Supreme Court is that uh, the district uh, court for the District of Columbia, which is overseeing the grand jury investigation, a, a judge by the name of Beryl Howell, had allowed a subpoena to be issued uh, against this company and uh, is now taking steps to enforce that subpoena when the company was not, res not responsive. Uh, she placed uh, a contempt sanctions order on the company, uh, and the company argues that it's subject, uh, not subject to contempt sanctions or indeed to the original subpoena uh, because it is owned by a foreign state. Uh, and so when the D.C. Circuit Court, the appeals court, uh, disagreed with the company, uh, the company sought recourse in the U.S. Supreme Court. And uh, as U.S. listeners will know and, and foreign listeners may or may not know, our Supreme Court generally uh, is able to select the cases that it hears. Uh, and it chose not to hear this dispute at this juncture. Great. Terrific. So first, before we get into some more nitty gritty, I would love to hear your speculation on the nature of this foreign entity. Do you have thoughts about that? Who it is? What? Oh, of course, that's what you'd like to hear because that's what everybody's interested in. So <laughs> I tweet at, um, at Keitner Law, as you may know. And when I started tweeting about this case, that's pretty much all everyone was interested in as well. You know, let's set aside the FSIA. Who cares about that? We want to know what the company is. So um, I honestly have, well, first of all, all of this transpired after I left government. So I obviously have no inside knowledge. In terms of speculation, you know, one would assume that the most natural company uh, that might hold records relevant to this investigation would be some sort of financial entity. So I'm, I'm fairly persuaded by those who are assuming we're dealing with some sort of foreign state-owned bank. Uh, it's obviously um, not... Uh, not a bank that would be considered uh, an agency or instrumentality of the government. We're, we're clearly seeing something that says, if you were owned by a foreign state, that's why we think we're entitled to sovereign immunity, but we're not uh, acting as if we're the state itself. So there is that level of, of separation, that degree of separation. Uh, the company is being represented by you know, private counsel in the United States. Uh, the foreign state itself, apparently, and again, we can deduce this from some of the pleadings that have been released in redacted form, uh, but of course, because these are, you know, an outgrowth of grand jury proceedings, the standard procedure is to keep things secret while the grand jury is still sitting, which it is in this case, uh, at least um, as we're having this conversation. It seems that the foreign government, some sort of lower official in the foreign government at one point submitted some sort of affidavit indicating that complying with the subpoena might uh, put the company in violation of foreign law. Uh, but the district court and the appeals court really did not find that argument persuasive. And other than that, uh, I don't see any evidence of sort of direct intervention by the foreign state itself on behalf of this company. But we do have the company uh, through its lawyers arguing that it is entitled to the sovereign immunity that the state would be entitled to. So, you know, Russia being a, a, an easy and straightforward guess, uh, others have um, suggested the Qatari Investment Authority, since, of course, there's also some suggestion of, of potential financial dealings in, in the Middle East that may be somehow reached by this investigation, but really uh, it's all pure speculation at this point. Great. So uh, one question that arises in this which I found pretty interesting, I had never thought about, is as you mentioned earlier, in the US we have a statutory framework for dealing with foreign sovereign immunities with, uh, with various exceptions which have been articulated in a number of different court cases. But there's a kind of threshold issue here, which is this is a criminal proceeding. 
Uh, and so there seems to be a, a kind of, I don't want to say it's necessarily an open question, but a question with, um, with some dispute about how the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act actually applies in criminal proceedings. So can you oh, elaborate a bit? Oh, I would absolutely characterize it as, as an open question. Yes, no, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't okay, shy away great. from that, that characterization at all. And, and that's actually the reason I, I find personally, as, as a, an academic, in addition to a, a past practitioner, uh, why I find this particular case so fascinating. So, uh, as you say, the statutory framework in the United States has generally been treated as comprehensive. In other words, you will see, you know, multiple Supreme Court cases interpreting and applying the FSIA, and in doing so, sort of prefacing their analysis with a comment to the effect of, you know, the only basis for uh, obtaining jurisdiction over a foreign state in U.S. courts is the FSIA. And therefore, um, once we've identified an entity as effectively a foreign state or an agency or instrumentality under this, uh, the definitions in the FSIA, we then must find an applicable exception to immunity in the FSIA in order for a U.S. court to exercise jurisdiction. By and large, these issues have always come up in civil proceedings, and so the fact that their civil proceedings has sort of gone unremarked upon uh, because it hasn't been an issue. The company, uh, very understandably, has argued that because all of these cases have arisen in the civil context and because the FSIA only affirmatively grants civil jurisdiction under the various enumerated exceptions, it should be entitled to absolute immunity because, sort of to borrow a phrase, the FSIA occupies the field, and if it doesn't affirmatively confer criminal jurisdiction on U.S. courts, then such jurisdiction should be understood to be precluded. Uh, as you can imagine, since this did reach the Supreme Court with the company petitioning for relief from the Supreme Court, that is not an argument that the lower courts accepted, uh, nor is it an argument that other lower courts have accepted in the occasional case that has raised this issue. So it really hasn't come up that often. Now, the way that the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, so the, the sort of highest court to have considered this issue uh, in depth so far, uh, and folks can find, if they're interested, a, a redacted opinion uh, by the D.C. Circuit, a three-judge panel uh, issued on January 8th of this year, the way they got to the conclusion that the subpoena uh, was proper and that contempt sanctions uh, could be issued, although they bracketed the question of whether they could be enforced, um, was a little bit circuitous because they recognized that the affirmative grants of jurisdiction in the FSIA are civil, uh, but nonetheless, they applied the FSIA's exceptions in the criminal context. I personally think that result is absolutely correct. I think there are uh, no reasons to believe that in 1976, the U.S. Congress thought it was foreclosing uh, criminal jurisdiction, in particular grand jury uh, proceedings against foreign state-owned entities uh, by enacting the FSIA. That said, um, the, the path by which I would get there is different from that adopted by the D.C. Circuit Court. and and. For those who are following the, the granular analysis, to be clear, the D.C. Circuit Court uh, assumed but didn't actually hold that the FSIA uh, uh, exceptions applied. And so uh, we don't actually have a holding as to whether or not the FSIA applies here, but we have a, a, a decision based on the assumption that it does. So if the statute doesn't apply, then what does apply? Well, 
the common law in our system. I mean, let, me, let me just pause you right there for a second because I want to yeah. get into the common law issue, but just on the statute, because you know this field so well. What you said at one point just now that we don't, uh, there's no reason to think that Congress in 1976, when passing the statute, believed it was uh, putting criminal um, uh, proceedings uh, outside the scope. What do we know about what Congress thought about that? Is there, has anyone really dug either into the legislative history or other things? Do we know much about how this came up, if at all, uh, back in the 70s? Well, that's a great question and um, happens to be something that I'm looking into myself at the moment, precisely because I find it so fascinating. But based on what we know uh, or what's you know been unearthed in the public record, it just wasn't a topic of conversation. And I think the reason was uh, that, you know, as, as you and others know, uh, the United States regime for foreign sovereign immunity had since 1952 been uh, officially a restrictive uh, regime that is uh, granting sovereign immunity or recognizing sovereign immunity of the state and its uh, agencies and instrumentalities for uh, so-called public or official acts, but not recognizing immunity for commercial acts. Now, that distinction in and of itself is a little bit fraught. I mean, one of my favorite quotes from Hirsch Lauterpacht is that the state, you know, always acts as a state. It cannot act otherwise. And so even the idea that a state acting as a private actor should be treated as a private actor is, is a bit of a fiction. But nonetheless, it's a fiction that, that we've adopted and that, that most other countries in the world have adopted that's reflected in the, uh, you know, not yet enforced, but uh, very laboriously drafted UN Convention on Jurisdictional Immunities of States right. and Their Properties. So the idea has been since 1952 and even before then uh, that sort of commercial acts are fair game for litigation in U.S. courts. Because the State Department had been directly involved in uh, suggesting immunity in cases and sort of making that differentiation between you know, cases that, that could and couldn't proceed, uh, the State Department wanted to get out of the business of doing that for foreign states, and it uh, and Congress was quite happy to try to codify the restrictive theory so that courts could apply uh, enumerated criteria in making those determinations. And so this really was what was occupying Congress uh, in the 70s, and they didn't have criminal proceedings on their mind. Um, the Supreme Court has also confirmed in a 2010 decision, Samantar versus Yusuf, uh, that they also didn't have the immunities of individual foreign officials on their minds. Uh, and so, you know, the, the statutory drafting process, as we all know, it, you know, it's making sausage in certain ways and uh, things in retrospect probably could have been stated more clearly. Uh, but what we see here is, is just a complete absence of, of language referring to criminal proceedings uh, or of, of uh, to my knowledge to date, really anything in the legislative record that would point clearly in one direction or the other. And does that seem to you to be a reflection of the fact that in this period in the 50s, between the Tate letter in 1952 and the statute in 1976, that in that period, the notion of criminal law as an essential feature of international law was just so... Uh, so small and so so early that it really, as you say, as I think you said, was not really even on their minds. Is that why it wasn't on their minds? This was just a field of international law that had simply not developed enough to even cross the mind of Congress. You know, I think that's possible. I think, uh, again, you know, one could talk to some of the folks who were involved in the drafting process who are still around. Some are still around. Uh, within our generation. So, you know, we don't only need to go on, on the historical written record. Uh, but I, I think it was, it was less that there was, 
there was simply not an attempt to codify those areas. So Congress turned its mind to the problem uh, at issue, which was, you know, proceedings for damages and other types of civil remedies against a host of agencies and entities with connections to foreign governments that were attempting to assert jurisdictional immunity. And so they, they really addressed the problem that came to them rather than, you know, sort of canvassing the entire field of potential related or cognate questions that could arise. Uh, so they really, I think, uh, I would hesitate to say that there was an assessment that other areas just simply weren't worth addressing or, or sufficiently well-developed to address, but they just didn't form part of the issues presented by the kinds of cases that were perplexing the State Department at the time. Agreed. I want to get to the common law issue just in a second. You mentioned Samatar, and that's obviously very relevant. Uh, just a last point on this, or last question on this line of thinking. Do you anticipate that we will see many more cases in the coming decades, or is there reason to believe we will see more of these kinds of cases where there is a criminal proceeding of some kind and a claim of sovereign immunity? Is that something, is this the beginning of a wave of these sorts of things? Well, um, that's a great sort of point for speculation. Um, we haven't had a wave so far. Um, as I said, there have been a handful of cases, so this is not uh, a unique or new issue. Um, although I haven't, of course, been involved on the prosecutorial side, my guess would be that we haven't seen as much litigation in this space also because, uh, generally speaking, entities that are doing business in the United States that have sufficient contact with the United States to be subject to the exceptions in the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. And so I suppose that's important to underscore that uh, the restrictive theory, of course, does not provide jurisdiction over any activity by any state-owned agency anywhere uh, that happens to be commercial in nature. There's uh, a statutory requirement of a nexus with the United States, and there are enumerated ways in which that nexus can be established uh, and indeed an important finding, but one that really wasn't challenged uh, in the litigation, at least at the appellate level, was uh, that this entity, notwithstanding the fact that it was owned by, a, it is owned by a foreign state and therefore qualifies for protection uh, under the law of sovereign immunity, would be subject to jurisdiction under the commercial exception as articulated in the FSIA. So there is that connection there. And my guess is that by and large, you know, let's say financial institutions doing business in the United States, uh, although, you know, we have seen a lot of action in the context of, you know, the extent to which uh, financial transactions that sort of pass through the United States should themselves be a basis for asserting jurisdiction over entities involved in those transactions. Nonetheless, I think institutions and entities with a significant U.S. presence will generally voluntarily comply with subpoenas for evidence. I mean, the, there's no indication that the company is uh, a target of this investigation or that the company is alleged to have itself engaged in any wrongdoing. It is really a, a request for records held by the company. And for whatever reason, uh, this time, this particular company uh, decided to uh, to object and not to comply. So. I don't know that we'd necessarily see an uptick in requests. Depending on how this case pans out in the end, perhaps it could embolden some companies to uh, resist complying with those subpoenas, although I think mm -hmm. that would be a very dangerous strategy given that uh, this company is now incurring 
$50,000 a day in contempt sanctions and will do so indefinitely uh, until it complies with the subpoena. Interesting. So in the little bit of time we have left, let's turn to the question of common law that uh, you started to talk about a moment ago. So, so if the statute does not apply, that doesn't mean there's no law. There's a, there's a common law framework kind of resting behind that. So say a word about that. Well, the common law of uh, foreign sovereign immunity is something that has received increasing attention in U.S. courts just in the last few years because of this Samantar opinion that we mentioned. And the pleadings uh, and decisions that have turned on or invoked common law immunity have really focused specifically on the context of proceedings against, uh, generally speaking, former foreign officials for acts that were allegedly in violation of international law, uh, but that were taken in their uh, sensible official capacities. So that's a, a fascinating issue, one in which I, I've written at length and would be happy to direct any of our listeners to uh, you know, relevant materials on that question. What has not been explored, uh, and, and what I am in the process of exploring, is what we can say about the common law governing uh, immunities of entities from criminal subpoenas. And I think there are a couple of, of principles that are pretty clear in this context. Uh, number one, uh, although the status of international law in U.S. law is a perennial subject of debate and scholarship uh, and judicial opinions, there is no doubt that the common law would look to relevant principles of international law in defining the bounds of foreign sovereign immunity from U.S. jurisdiction. And in this respect, in this particular case, I think it's quite relevant that, to my knowledge, our FSIA is fairly unusual in extending the protections of foreign sovereign immunity to a state-owned company uh, such as the company at issue here. So uh, to begin with, I think that the question is only presented because of our rather expansive definition of the types of entities that we treat as uh, presumptively entitled to sovereign immunity. So that threshold question is one in which uh, international law, or at least international law as evidenced in the general practice of states, probably would not favor the company here. When it comes to exceptions, if that threshold entitlement to immunity were to be established, uh, then I think, uh, again, you know, given what we know about uh, the, the lower court's findings in terms of the company's connections to the United States uh, and the fact that these are purely commercial transactions and records at issue, uh, there really does not seem to me to be uh, a plausible claim of immunity from essentially, you know, the criminal analog to uh, discovery in a, in a case like this. But I, as I've mentioned, uh, courts so far, rather than grappling with what the substance of the common law might be, have generally taken the path of applying the FSIA exceptions uh, in these sorts of cases. And it will be interesting if the Supreme Court does take up the question at a future date, uh, whether we get some more uh, analysis of, of how to figure out the parameters of, of common law immunity, or if indeed Congress might uh, decide to step in and uh, articulate those parameters more explicitly. Shaman, thank you so much for a really terrific analysis and breakdown of, of what's a pretty complicated, but I think pretty fascinating area. So really, uh, really appreciate you coming on the podcast and I hope to have you on again soon. 
Well, I'd love to, and, and uh, everyone can look out for hopefully a, an article on this issue in a couple months' time. So hold my feet to the fire, and I will uh, endeavor to get it out. Great. We look forward to it. Take care. Okay, thanks. 